Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It's February 8th, 2018, and on this week's show, how to create a winning Super Bowl ad, why the Tarantino story matters for every filmmaker, a huge week in gear announcements, and as always, news you can use about upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. As you can tell, my big news is that I almost have my voice back. Hooray! So in case you were living under a rock, or like in India, which, fun fact, is our ninth most popular country for listeners, what up India? You may have missed the fact that American Football Super Bowl happened this past Sunday. And even though viewership of the game was way down, viewership of the Super Bowl ads, aka the part that's relevant to this podcast, was way up. According to Deadline, viewership of Super Bowl ads on YouTube overall increased 16% over 2017 levels. Which probably makes the advertisers happy, as anything that can happen to give them a return on that $5 million per 30-second spot is a good thing. There were many fewer famous directors behind the ads this year. Remember last year the Coen brothers even did one? But there were a few indie helmers. I have to give a special shout out to one of my favorites, doc maker and founder of Free the Bid, Alma Harrell, who was one of only four female directors with a Super Bowl spot. She did that awesome Coca-Cola one called The Wonder of Us. And she represented at the DGA Awards, too, as only the second female nominated in the commercial director category ever. So a big week for our friend Alma. Now, if you're interested in pitching Super Bowl ads yourself next year, Adweek was kind enough to post success metrics created by NBC Universal after analyzing every spot from the last three Super Bowls and identifying 578 variables for assessment. I found a couple of these really interesting. For example, ads with working class themes and famous actors resulted in increased Google searches, which I guess isn't that shocking. Uh, animated characters are a reliable method of growing YouTube views. And patriotic ads or those promoting social causes are more likely to trend on Twitter. Yeah, speaking of patriotic, too, I, there was some controversy, I believe, about using some of Martin Luther King's words. But, you know, the MLK thing was interesting because, I mean, technically they did have the right. They couldn't use the speech without being given permission by his family's Family foundation. Time. But I think the controversy was that, you know, he was pretty anti-capitalist, anti-commercial, and then this... You know, his speech is being used to sell trucks, which, you yeah. know. Well, so they did have the right to use it. But what was interesting is that the King family didn't give Selma the right to use uh, any part of Martin Luther King's speeches. So it also just is like, what's going on with the King family where they're like trying to turn a profit with, I guess, you know, Dodge. So it's clear that, you know, money was a big driving factor in the decision um and i don't know i don't know what was going on there yeah there were no deceased celebrities brought back this year for a commercial i don't believe although prince was part of the halftime prince show. he was he was anyway yeah i thought that ad was really in poor taste and i agree john it's questionable that the king family would allow the ad and not like a creative work that was honoring martin luther king's life so in good news for filmmakers, five of the top 10 most watched spots were movie or series trailers. Now, a couple weeks ago, we started to get press releases about one of them, Dundee, the son of a legend returns home, 
which was the 30-something-year-later sequel to Crocodile Dundee, where Danny McBride and Chris Hemsworth play the adventurer's sons who come to rescue him from being lost in the outback. So when my friends asked me, is this for real? While it aired, I was like, yeah, because again, we had received official announcements about it. But it turns out that the entire thing, including the press releases, was part of an elaborate $27 million campaign by the Tourism Australia board to attract American visitors. Funny enough, there's now a petition circulating online to get this movie made in reality. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I literally got a press release right after it aired detailing the whole stunt in like three pages. And I'm just like, what is going on here? (laughs) Why is it so complex? And it seemed like a stunt that was played specifically on press as well. Like, I I think the first email announcing the film came out during Sundance. And it was like, oh, wow, this sounds like a terrible idea. But we didn't really blink all that much because... Well, not only that, the announcement got picked up by USA Today, Entertainment, you know, Entertainment Weekly, all these big publications. And now do they retract that initial article and say, actually, it was for tourism in Australia. And it felt a little muddled. I don't know, because then I started warming up to the idea of a new Crocodile Dundee movie, (laughs) you know? It's just like an extremely expensive guerrilla advertising tactic. It's like kind of the opposite of what a typical guerrilla advertisement would be, which is like low budget, trying to spread, you know, awareness through like maybe misleading the press. But then when you spend like $27 million on doing that, that seems a little bit uh, insane. But, you know, I hope they make the movie because of it, because it it looked awesome. I hope Australia gets tourists because of it, because we all love Australia around here. And now we're going to go from a movie that was announced, which turned out to be fake, to a movie that wasn't announced, which turned out to be real. I'm sure many of you saw the 30-second TV spot for The Cloverfield Paradox, which was the third film in the Cloverfield sci-fi monster movie franchise that kicked off 10 years ago by J.J. Abrams and his Bad Robot Productions. If you enjoyed that franchise, then you were maybe, perhaps, hearing rumblings about a third film, but a still hadn't been released, a trailer hadn't been released, even a title hadn't really been released. And then on Super Bowl Sunday... Just boom, several commercials aired saying the film would be coming to screens via Netflix at the end of the football game. Sounds like kind of a paradox. It was really fascinating to see how much of Twitter went from, wow, this shocking release strategy is going to change the entire landscape of film distribution. Netflix is bypassing all of the media gatekeepers to deliver content directly to the fans. And then like a few hours later after the film was released – the tune kind of shifted to like, oh, Paramount sold the rights to the film uh, to Netflix because they knew that they didn't have like a solid, well-made theatrical film on their hands and they decided to dump it and move on. Now, that theory actually holds some weight as Paramount, after hosting poorly held test screenings for Ex Machina director Alex Garland's new sci-fi film, Annihilation, decided to sell the international distribution rights on that project outside of the U.S. and China to Netflix as well which is ultimately giving up a potentially hefty amount of international profit for the now apparently, we'll see, doomed $55 million production that Paramount itself financed. So is Netflix agreeing to take hold of Paramount's leftovers, or does Netflix see something in the work that Paramount doesn't? Now, I have not seen the new Cloverfield film, although I really love the first one, and I'm kind of obsessed with giant monsters destroying New York City outside of Donald Trump. But uh, (laughs) I I do think uh, how quickly the discussion changed regarding the release of the film almost mirrored the brief amount of time the public was 
interested in it. And so it was definitely a conversation starter, and that conversation shifted a lot very quickly. Um, well, just the fact that the conversation shifted, like, shows that it was a success because people actually went and watched it. You know what I mean? Like, I think they strategically aired it at a point in the Super Bowl where, like, regular people who aren't football fans wouldn't be interested in watching football anymore. So now that they, they see that this new Cloverfield movie is on Netflix, they would just be like, okay, we can, like, now that Justin Timberlake's done dancing, we can watch, you know, these aliens take over this spaceship in a new Cloverfield movie. Um, and then that had the adverse reaction of, you know, everyone finding out that it's actually not a very good movie really quickly. So the buzz died almost as soon as it was built up. Um, Although similar to the Australia stunt, we're still talking about it. So there's something to be said for it. Well, it's a new Cloverfield movie. And it's it kind of disappointing that this new one isn't getting very good critical reception because I thought 10 Cloverfield Lane was super like really good, um, especially compared to the first Cloverfield, which I also enjoyed, but it just took the whole series into another sort of artistic uh, direction. It was just much more of a thriller, uh, less supernatural, more psychological. So I was excited to see what this anthology could actually bring. And hopefully they can take it back uh, when they do uh, Cloverfield 4, which is already rumored to, I think, deal with civil war zombies so we'll see how that goes i'm sure by the time the podcast comes out uh, the film will be already out <laughs> on and netflix. Uh, the, on netflix and the fifth one will be greenlit it's a little worrisome because it seems like moving towards this pulpier almost like sharknado universe um which isn't something that i would have guessed after seeing 10 cloverfield lane but you know it's uh i guess that's paramount's decision uh, Quentin Tarantino was in the news this week, and unfortunately from that point on, he became the news this week. Uh, after the New York Times released an article last Sunday on the abuse and harassment actress Uma Thurman suffered at the hands of Harvey Weinstein, the two had worked in various capacities on Pulp Fiction and the Kill Bill franchise, the biggest conversation starter of the piece became what Thurman documented regarding a car crash she experienced while shooting Kill Bill. As the New York Times reported, in the famous scene where Thurman is driving the blue convertible to kill Bill, she was asked to do the driving herself. But she had been led to believe by a teamster, she says, that the car, which had been reconfigured from a stick shift to an automatic, might not be working that well. She says she insisted that she didn't feel comfortable operating the car and would prefer a stunt person to do it. Now, after fighting for close to 15 years to obtain footage of the crash that Weinstein and his company were keeping out of her hands and deliberately holding that footage captive and hostage, Tarantino was able to locate the footage, provide it to Thurman, and from there the footage was subsequently embedded in last week's article in the New York Times. The footage and Tarantino's apology and reasoning for the crash, which involved deciding to have Thurman drive the car in the opposite direction of a previously safety-approved road, sparked outcries of onset safety rights, overbearing pressure placed on actors by their directors, and the allowance of director-enforced abuse being justified for the authenticity of a given scene. Now, this is not a new practice, unfortunately, as had has been well documented. And I'll always remember the story of how William Friedkin 
injured Ellen Burstyn on the set of The Exorcist after a crew member pulled a rig that was attached to the actress much too hard, and she flew halfway across the room, severely injuring her back. It's when uh, Linda Blair is possessed and she kind of lurches at her mother. That moment and her very real reaction to it, where she grips her back in pain, are actually in the finished film, and hearing Burstyn's story of how she previously voiced her concerns to Friedkin before the stunt was to take place... I've always felt just slightly uncomfortable knowing that backstory while watching the film itself. Yeah, and I guess like a few more details from that whole Tarantino revelation. Um, One is that, you know, Tarantino still, and I'm not being a Tarantino apologist right now, but he uh, said that making Uma do that was like the worst thing that he'd ever done in his life as part of his apology. And the reason why, of course, it was so unsafe was that he decided to flip the road because of something having to do with the lighting of the film. Um, And he wanted her to be going 40 miles per hour at least so that her hair would be blowing in the wind. So that all contributed to sort of this devastating injury for Thurman, who says she hasn't really fully recovered from it ever. Um, And the whole spinning in the face thing, which happened in Kill Bill, he said he wanted to do it as few times as possible. What was the, what are the details of that? So there's the scene in Kill Bill, uh, in the the first scene, um, where she's, the bride is attacked in a church and um, it's that black and white scene and she gets like basically beaten into a coma and then spit on. and like that whole spitting thing, I guess, was, you know, it was kind of complimentary to the whole beating to death. So when you're watching it, you're not really focused on it that much. But it turns out that Tarantino uh, insisted on himself spitting on her because he was also doing like art direction and wanted to spit in exactly the right place where he could see it on camera so that she didn't have to go through getting spit on a ton of times. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of weird. Um, and then he also choked her on set with, uh, if you remember in Kill Bill, there's the big fight between the crazy 88s. and I love, I fucking love Kill Bill. So uh, there's this big fight between the crazy 88s and the nightclub and uh, the bride in her Bruce Lee yellow and black jumpsuit. And uh, there was a certain stunt where Gogo, one of the uh, members of the Crazy 88, had this like chain ball. Uma Thurman actually wanted to be physically choked by it um, because she said it was a uh, something that she couldn't really replicate without being choked. Um, and she wanted Tarantino to do it for her. So, you know, <laughs> filmmaking is such a gray area it just brings up all these questions about like what is there a certain code of conduct that should be the same for every set or do certain circumstances change safety regulations it's it's very interesting question i think you know my first impressions are that so much of it has to do just like with this whole larger me too times up conversation with consent like uma said she didn't want to drive the car he made her drive the car uma said she was okay with being choked by the ball and chain, <laughs> right. and he choked her. So, like, in one case she consented, in the yeah, other yeah. case she didn't. You know, yeah. I mean that that feels kind of straightforward to me. Although there's so many gray areas, and this also brings to mind that horrible story we reported on last year from Last Tango in Paris that the rape in that movie, mm-hmm. the central peak uh, dramatic scene in that movie, uh, the rape was real. Right. 
in order to get the authentic reaction. And I, I don't think these days anyone could really argue that that's okay. <laughs> I am curious, John, because you, you know, you are a trained actor, as we've discussed many times, and you've also brought up on the show so many times, you know, that directors really need to respect their actors in terms of their input and also, like, their safety. Like, how does this story resonate with you from that angle? I mean, I agree if, like, the actor is cool with it and if they're, like, even suggesting that, like, the scene take place this way, then really, like, there's not a problem there. Um, I mean, you know, it's it, it's more of an accountability problem at that point. It's, like, who's to blame if something goes wrong, even though, like, you're doing method acting or whatever. Like, what could the consequences be? Um, and who is to blame for that. But, like, you know, even after directing my first short, it just becomes, like, a much larger issue of, you know, you have this vision and you want to see it fulfilled. And if it's a strange vision, there might be things that your actors are uncomfortable with. And as a director, you're going to probably do whatever you can to make them be comfortable with it and to want, like, the scene to happen to ensure your vision is fulfilled so again it's just like this really crazy gray area of what's like ethical for a director to be uh sort of manipulating their actor to want to do um you know maybe it's a matter of having someone else on set who's like explicit responsibility is cast and crew safety even if that's someone who already exists like 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 every production decides who's going to be the sort of safety manager whether it's the producer or it's its own role and that's the person who's you know reeling the director back once in a while or or you know determining where those lines might be or the person who you know as we've also talked about there isn't always a clear person on set who you can go to if you feel like you're un- like in an unsafe position and maybe that really needs to be a clear position. Yeah, and it also shows just how powerful it is to actually see it, to see the car crash in that footage. Uh, I think having that in the actual New York Times article itself helped to really push that dialogue forward because hearing about it and hearing others' uh, disputes and different recollections of how it happened, to actually get the visual of it, I think, is very important. There have been other you know, classic stories of unfortunate deaths deaths on film sets, like the Twilight Zone movie where two people were killed and that footage was destroyed, et cetera. Mm. Um, and how Harvey Weinstein here tried to keep that footage destroyed and, and gone forever. So I think the power to actually get that back, either legally or through other means, definitely helped to increase the importance and very real specificity of it. It is um, also kind of amazing just how many ways Harvey Weinstein was a scumbag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think now thinking about it, um, you know, to answer your question that you asked me earlier, Liz, like if your actor is up for doing that, for up for being choked or whatever, you as the director have to be willing to accept the consequences for those actions because ultimately you're the one in charge so if something goes wrong you need to take the blame and maybe that's something that like this dialogue can really help to put into the forefront regardless of sex or whatever you know right that's really interesting because it's not just about consent 
even if somebody says yes to something, you could still judge that that thing is is inappropriate or harmful or dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, on to happier news. Um, as award season rages on, one ceremony that may be close to our listeners' hearts is the aforementioned Directors Guild of America, or DGA Awards, which were held last Saturday night in Beverly Hills. Um, as V. Renee, I don't know why that's the Beverly Hills. <laughs> Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> win a DGA Award. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Incidentally, one time I went to the Google offices out in Beverly Hills and their whole cafeteria is set up like the Peach Pit on Beverly Hills 90210. Really? It was amazing. And Shannon Doherty was like handing out food. Oh, poor thing. She probably was. <laughs> anyway, as V. Renee reported on the site, the annual awards honor directors in film, TV, and commercials. Uh, Guillermo del Toro took home the big film prize for his work on The Shape of Water, while Jordan Peele received the, the award for Best First-Time Director for Get Out. Matthew Heineman was recognized for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for City of Ghosts. Winners for television included Bethany McCarthy Miller for Veep and Reed Morano for The Handmaid's Tale, which some would say was a bit of a surprise, considering directors Jeremy Podeswa, Matt Shackman, and Alan Taylor were all nominated for three separate episodes of Game of Thrones in the same category. Outstanding directorial achievement in specials was handed to Glenn Weiss for last year's Academy Awards, which I thought was odd given the whole La La Land Moonlight snafu. I don't know. You know what? That was the most memorable Oscar (laughs) moment in the 90 years of the ceremony. Oh, yeah, and it, you've been watching every year? I, I've been watching every single year. I, since 1927, I've <laughs> it's it's been incredible. 1933 was a great one, but since then, the last one was absolutely amazing. Um, maybe he was awarded the DGA Award because of how he also dealt with like that. Like how he handled. That's know, what it, I was thinking, it's too. It's like, go to the reactions, go to the reactions. <laughs> You know? Yeah, something like that. Somebody has their camera phone recording the uh, the footage, you know, from the crowd and stuff like that, and cut to this, cut to that. Like it, I don't know. I thought it was pretty well done. I'd, it's always hard to kind of judge the directing of certain award show telecasts, and then you're awarding it with an award. Um, <laughs> it's pretty meta. Yeah, you know, it's it's always interesting when like a Tony Award ceremony wins an Emmy or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I'd be interested in looking back at who the other nominees were. And now here's Charles Hain with this week's Gear News. So, Jesus, what a crazy week in Gear News. Things were, like, winding down on Thursday. Then, bam, out of nowhere, Panavision upgrades the DXL to the DXL2, which is crazy because the DXL only came out, like, two years ago. And by the next morning, Ari had released their first real 4K Alexa, the Alexa LF, which assumes you don't count the monster Alexa 65 6K camera, of course. So, first off, the first news that came out, the Panavision DXL upgrade shouldn't have come as much of a surprise, though honestly, for me, it did. Uh, The original DXL is built on a red sensor, so as red rolls out new sensors, as they did recently with the new Monstro, it makes sense that correspondingly Panavision would upgrade the DXL. The new DXL2 will offer a base ISO of 1600, a whopping 16 stops of dynamic range, whole new color processing built on top of RED's new color processing, IPP2, which is going to be called Light Iron Color 2, to take advantage of the wide gamut capabilities of the sensor. And overall, this should really be one of the hottest rentals in town. Hours later, we learned about the new Alexa LF from Ari. In contrast to the Panavision RED model, where new sensors come fast and furious, this camera is built on the same sensor that Ari's been using since roughly 2010, the ALEV-3. 
We just talked about that last week. Yeah. And they're like, oh, hey, the No Film School guys like it, so we're just going to keep going with it. Uh, um, Eight-year-old technology. Like, think about what cell phone you used in 2010. I had an iPhone 3G. It was a long time ago. Technology's come a long way. But Ari is very confident in their sensor design. And considering that 90 Sundance projects out on Alexa and their total dominance at the Academy Awards, it seems like they're right. Our own John Fusco shot his short recently on Alexa. It is loved. Yes, that's what uh, it's loved by me and my cinematographer. I mean, that's that's enough. Yep. Everyone um, else too. <laughs> so the LF turns things on their side, literally, uh, which is a very Liz Nord way to put it, but I enjoyed it uh, by using an arrangement similar to the Alexa 65 and turning two of the Super 35 millimeter sensors sideways and smooshing them together to create the new sensor for the LF which is LF for large format. The most impressive part is that they managed to do it in a body not that much bigger than the normal Alexa SXTW. Unlike the massive Alexa 65, the LF is just 12 millimeters wider and longer than a normal Alexa body. It also features a brand new lens mount, LPL, which, unlike the XPL of the Alexa 65, was custom designed for modern optical designs and uses a much smaller 44 millimeter flange focal distance. This lets them ship all Alexa LF cameras with an LPL to PL adapter, which means all the lenses you already own are going to work with the Alexa uh, LF. But it opens up some new options, particularly not just in terms of what they can adapt LPL to, but also lenses that are custom designed straight up for LPL can take advantage of the shorter flange focal distance because there doesn't need to be a spinning mirror behind the lens. Um, At the same time, they rolled out a whole new line of Aerie signature lenses designed just for the platform. Uh, I looked at a price sheet this morning for the signature line. Uh, Lenses cost between $20,000 and $40,000 a piece. So I can imagine most people will be using an LPL to PL adapter to use some other lenses as well. The Aerie Signature line is going to remain a rental and rich people only item for a while. But, you know, they'll get out there. We'll be able to rent them. It'll be great. On top of all that, Sony has hit their ship date and started shipping their their new full-frame camera, Venice. In a world where ship dates are so often meaningless, we especially wanted to give Sony credit for announcing they would ship in February and then shipping on February 2nd. It is much appreciated. Venice is exciting for a whole host of reasons. Not only are Panavision and Airy Alexa mostly cinema-focused, Venice is cinema-focused, but Sony as a company does volume work in broadcast, and they tend to sell a lot of units and have benefits from that scale. So Sony moving into full frame, especially since they already have a lot of full frame lenses from their Sony E-mount line for their still cameras, opens up the whole world of Sony glass for a full frame camera. And of course, Venice, you can get it with either a PL mount or an E-mount for their E-mount lenses. So it's probably a more cost effective way to get into full frame capture, especially considering all of the beautiful still lenses they already have for E-mount. So Really exciting to see another option. So at this point, all of the big contenders have full frame except Panasonic. Again. Again. I still love the EVA one so much. Um, But yeah, everybody's got a full frame, which hopefully means that next year we'll have a Panasonic full frame. We'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm hopeful. Whatever. The EVA one's so good it might not matter. 
Uh, last up, I wanted to give a special shout out to Core SWX. We don't talk about batteries a lot <laughs> on Gear News, but I love this one. They made a camcorder battery with a P-tap. So this is awesome. The first one outs for the Panasonic EVA1, but more coming for Canon and Sony, and it's going to be like a huge help. If you have a camcorder-style camera, any of the Canon C-Line, the C100, the C200, except for the C700, which takes the big batteries, most of us are out there working with the little camcorder-style batteries, and the ability to plug in a wireless follow focus or a better monitor into a smaller can camera body is huge. Honestly, one of the things that pushes us to the bigger cameras a lot of times is more power ports. And having a power tap option so you get at least one power out in that smaller camera is huge. This leads us to our last bit of news, which is Teradek bought RT Motion. RT Motion are the UK manufacturer of a popular line of wireless follow focus, best known for their powerful brushless motors and their 6-axis controller, which means you can use their controller to power a full stereo motion rig if you wanted. While the only thing that's changed so far is they're moving production from UK to California, which is very exciting, um, what we're really excited about is future collaborations. So, for instance, the recent Teradek Small HD collaboration was the 703 Bolt which is a very elegant wireless monitoring solution that combines the monitor and the receiver. So now we're really excited to see what happens when Teradek and the folks at RT start working closely together. It would be so awesome if there was like a single box you could mount to the camera that would do your wireless video and control your focus motors. That would be very cool. And then you could power it all off a single PTAP going into that core SWS X PTAP battery. So a pretty cool thing. Um, hopefully uh, we look forward to seeing the fruits of that collaboration soon. And in the short term, you can buy a Teradek RT and it's made in the USA. Great. Thanks, Charles. And moving on to Ask No Film School for this week, Paul E. wrote on our boards to say that he's feeling uncomfortable in film school because although there are lots of opportunities for onset learning, he just doesn't feel like he fits in with other film students. He said, quote, most were nice enough, but I felt like some of the people were kind of pretentious or were showing off what they knew. I really love films and have a passion for it, but I feel like I don't relate to the film culture or at least the sets I've been a part of. I like making my own things with my own small crews far more, although I know I don't always do everything the right way. Liz, what do you do when you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> yeah, I usually have gas. Um, What? Okay. You must feel a lot of uncomfortability on this podcast. <laughs> um, sorry. In all seriousness, thanks for the question, Paul. I bet a lot of our listeners can relate to this. Um, I also want to thank the No Film School community for providing so many thoughtful answers to Paul on the boards. Interestingly, though, there was some debate among the respondents. Andrew Alvarez said, The best advice I could give is just do what you love and let those people be distracted with their petty ego. Also, you'll get to a point where you find a few people you really like and work with them over and over and over again, avoiding all these kinds of people. Now, many agreed with him, but Trevor Hobart said that this was pretty bad advice, adding that, quote, outside of some basic skills and techniques, the most important part of film school is networking and learning how to work along with a crew. I actually think that both of these general themes have merit. Here's the thing. A lot of us creative types are the weirdos in our high schools, and we might be hoping that if we go to art school or film school, we will immediately find our tribes. But people go to film school for all sorts of reasons, some of which might have to do much more with status than with craft. 
So I say do both. Seek out your people, who will become more and more clear as you work on sets together and screen each other's work, which will also let you see who you share similar aesthetics or creative sensibilities with. But also try to get along with everyone and find commonalities, because there's no doubt that this is a people's business. I'd say approach everyone as someone you can learn from, even if what you're learning is how not to behave on set. Also, if you have free time, try getting out of your school environment and connecting with the larger film community in your area by PAing on bigger sets or attending filmmaker events and mixers. It's never too early to start doing that. I'll end with some words from our wonderful writer, Oakley Anderson Moore, who pointed out, quote, while it sucks, feeling uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean you're on the wrong track. A lot of times, quite the opposite. You have just as much right to be in the program as anyone, maybe more based on how passionate you are about filmmaking. So I hope you stick it out. End quote. Thanks, Oakley. Thanks, Paul E. And do you guys have anything to add? Oakley's so pretentious, though. It's, you know, it's hard to... And the language, while it sucks and, and just it's a little <laughs> profane. Just kidding. Oakley's the best. We love Oakley. Hey, Paul, good luck. Let us know what happens. And now moving on to the movies that are opening this week on Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Good Time on February 11th. This was easily one of my favorite films from last year. I'd say even top five for sure. Ooh, of the year or ever? Uh, of the year. Mm. Uh, anyone who saw and enjoyed the Safdie Brothers film Heaven Knows What will certainly know what they're in for with this film, but Good Time is even more accessible and lighter in theme. The action movie blends comedy, drama, and thrills together in a way that is probably most directly comparable to an early Martin Scorsese. So think Mean Street's Taxi Driver era. All three directors hold heavy roots in NYC that are easy to identify through their gritty and frenetic aesthetic. Growing up in New York City, your sense of space is thrown out of whack and it's completely unconscious, Josh Safdie said to Interview Magazine back in 2010. You feel an ownership of the street and the six feet around you at all times, which often spawns screaming matches and constant littering. It also manifests living in the moment, which is a major influence on our work, that warped moment. The Safdies even shot the movie on 35mm film, meshing the old-school feel with an upbeat modern soundtrack and vibrant neon lighting. Quote, we wanted it to feel like lightning, Josh explained to Emily Booter in an interview with No Film School earlier this year. Indeed, as Emily confirmed in the said interview, quote, watching Good Time is like writing the Coney Island Cyclone. It's a genre film or a pulp movie, as the brothers describe it, a thrill ride as old as time. Its rickety structure threatens to collapse at every turn and you emerge from the theater with whiplash. Pretty good writing from Emily, I'd say. The for heist, once. For once. The heist movie follows a bank robber in what is easily Robert Pattinson's greatest performance ever, in my opinion, who spends a night trying... You've clearly never seen Twilight. I haven't. Uh... So anyways, Robert Pattinson spends a night trying to free his mentally handicapped brother, played by Benny Safdie, from being sent to Rikers Island Prison after their attempted heist goes awry. And uh, we'll put a link to Emily's article on the site so you can read it. I used to go to that Adventureland uh, theme park in the third act as a child, so it was a very different experience watching it now and what happens in that third act of the film. haven't been back since I was like eight or nine years old, but... Uh, it's very different now. Greg Matola, the director, used to work there, and that's what he made. That's what he based his film Adventureland on back in two thousand and eight or two thousand nine. So shout out for that getting into the film, as well as White Castle. It's a very Queens movie, and I take much pride in that. <laughs> huh? 
I don't think I've ever heard anyone express pride in White Castle before. Oh, it's not going to come again, let me tell you. <laughs> Premiering on Netflix this Friday is the documentary Seeing Allred, which was one of the few Netflix releases that premiered at Sundance last month. It's also one of the films that caused many industry people to tout this year's fest as one of the most diverse and female-empowering ones yet. It follows women's rights attorney Gloria Allred as she takes on the biggest names in American culture as coverage of sexual assault allegations in the media become more prevalent. It was directed by Roberta Grossman and Sophia Sartain, who were nominated for a grand jury prize for their efforts. The highest grossing superhero origin film of all time is coming to HBO on Saturday. There's nothing much indie about it, but it's certainly worth a mention because of its exceptionalism on many levels. I'm talking, of course, about Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. It smashed all kinds of records, but it was also a really enjoyable and beautifully shot film. I interviewed the film's director of photography, Matthew Jensen, who had also shot several episodes of Game of Thrones, about shooting it. I asked him if there was anything different about his approach to Wonder Woman because she's a female superhero, and he said no, not at all. Quote, we approached the material and the look and everything the way I would approach any movie. The idea always was to tell the best story that we could to do this character justice. I think we always wanted to make her look strong and powerful and beautiful. And frankly, I take that approach with male actors or female actors. We're always trying to put them in the best light. It was all the same to me. End quote. Now, as hard as it is to make Gal Gadot look strong and beautiful, I think he did a pretty fine job. But where was the White Castle? <laughs> And coming to theaters on February 9th is Golden Exits. Is that the Trump dossier story? No. That's that a big. <laughs> golden Showers. That's Golden Showers. Alex Ross Perry is back with his newest dive into the hip NYC family dramedy genre. And although it's likely not as horrifying as his last film, 2015's Queen of the Earth, Perry is one of the very best in the business when it comes to writing dark comedies. The film tells an intersectional narrative of two families in Brooklyn and the unraveling of unspoken unhappiness that occurs when a young foreign girl spending time abroad upsets the balance on both sides. Unraveling is a good term for pretty much all of Alex Ross Perry's characters. The film stars Emily Browning, Adam Horowitz, who's getting more and more acting gigs in NYC these days. He's uh, Ad-Rock from the Beastie Boys. Mary Louise Parker, Jason Schwartzman, and Chloe Sevigny. And now for some upcoming deadlines on events and grants. So in grant deadline news, first up, we have the Sundance Documentary Creative Producing Fellowship and Lab. The deadline for that is February the 15th, which is next Thursday. The Sundance Institute will choose five emerging producers with projects in production or post-production to attend the Creative Producing Lab and be part of a year-long mentorship program. Sundance says... The core of the creative producing program are its labs that identify and nurture the independent producer. There are three different producing labs throughout the year, depending on your area of focus, documentary, feature film, and native. And also with a deadline on February 15th are the NEA Artworks Grants, a competitive initiative from the National Endowment of the Arts. Awards range from $10,000 to $100,000 and must have a 501c3 organization that can apply. So this means that fiscal sponsors do not count. The National Endowment for the Arts is committed to support activities that reflect the dynamic, diverse, and evolving nature of the media arts field. So think new media and VR projects because they're highly encouraged. 
Applicants may apply in the artworks category for media art projects that support creation, exhibition, education, and distribution of historic and contemporary artworks in all genres and forms that use electronic media, film, and technology, analog and digital, old and new, as an artistic medium or a medium to broaden arts appreciation and awareness of any discipline. All genres are welcome to apply, and all phases of project support are eligible. And up next, we have a couple of festival deadlines. The first is Rooftop Films, which has a late deadline of this Friday, February 9th. Uh, How many times have we at No Film School told you to submit to this festival? It's really great, and it takes place on, surprise, various rooftops throughout the summer in New York City. And every filmmaker who submits a film will receive two free tickets to the 2018 Rooftop Films Summer Series, which is a $30 value, and you would get that by submitting the film. Any artist whose work is selected to screen in any capacity becomes eligible to apply each year to the Rooftop Filmmakers Fund, and that awards grants every year to be put toward future films and videos. Uh, Rooftop Films is something that's always looked forward to, by all cinephiles and film goers kind of throughout New York City. It's always a very cool environment and they choose some really cool locations and there's usually a after party and some drinks and some shorts that screen beforehand and a live band. It's always a really cool, fun party atmosphere. And another festival that's happening in New York City this summer is the Brooklyn Film Festival, which has a deadline on February 15th. This takes place from June 1st to the 10th, 2018. BFF is a cool festival that was really one of the first of its kind in New York City. It's been running for 21 years now. In addition to their lineup of films, the festival also hosts multiple filmmaker parties and networking events at venues around Brooklyn and New York City. Many of the award-winning films from the Brooklyn Film Festival have gone on to have theatrical releases, to have nationwide broadcasts on PBS and HBO, and to be nominated and awarded at both the British and the Academy Awards. I was actually one of three jury members uh, that judged the narrative shorts last year. So if you're submitting a short to this festival, I might just judge you too. And also, interestingly, uh, the short that we ended up choosing was nominated for an Academy Award, and it was their North American premiere. So uh, I f- well, what was the name of it? The name is, I think, oh. it's like, it's it's African, so it's hard for me to, okay. it's like, oh, what a, uh, <laughs> wow. this is ignorant well, of me. Well, they, they should thank you, personally, I feel. And finally, we have the Bend Film Festival, which has a early bird deadline of February 15th. The festival runs from October 12th through Sunday, October 15th, 2018, with most venues located in Bend's historic downtown and the nearby Old Mill District. Every award comes with a cash prize, but Best of Show is at $5,000 and the Best Narrative Feature with a $60,000 camera rental package from Panavision are probably the most enticing. It is a top 100 best-reviewed fest on Film Freeway and a near-constant fixture on Movie Maker Magazine's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. And that film is called Watu Wote, All of Us in English, and it's by Katja Benrath and Tobias Rosen from Germany. Oh, I want to check it out. It's really good. Obviously. And now for weekly words of wisdom. 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 I'll start. I always like words of wisdom that go against conventional wisdom, which is what mine do this week. They come from the DP Bjorn Charpentier, who shot the John Hamm starring Sundance spy thriller Beirut. Loretta Prevost wrote up a talk Charpentier gave at the Zeiss Lounge during the festival, where he talked about the lighting and setups for the mostly handheld shoot. He said, 
We wanted a dock style and not a classic Hollywood approach. The ground rules were no fill, no backlight, and no moon. We wanted the illusion that a scene could be lit only by car headlights. They met these rules in part by painting all the walls with a satin finish so that they were more reflective, which, as Loretta pointed out, is something that DPs usually avoid. Charpentier added, We needed to find a lighting philosophy that worked for two cameras and gave a visual tone, which was achieved by light bouncing off the colored walls and giving a funky cast. The DP said that he even asked the makeup artist to give a shiny look to Ham instead of the usual matte finish. So I thought those were some unconventional tactics to consider if you're going for like a dark 70s look. Um, I had no idea that we were going to be referencing Oakley twice on this podcast, so I I apologize in advance. Uh, Our good friend Oakley Anderson Moore sat down with first-time feature director Michael Dweck at Sundance a few weeks back to discuss his film The Last Race, which is a proud, loud documentary about the last stock car racetrack on Long Island and the drivers who speed across its tracks. Now, on the topic of finding his story in the edit, Dweck was very honest about the trouble he experienced as a first-timer. At first, I was listening to everybody I could for feedback, Dweck told Oakley, and I was very inexperienced and had never made a film before. I had friends that would tell me, no, you have to have conflict at least 10 minutes in or 20 minutes in. I originally had a very confident editor, and because of my inexperience, I let him drive the bus. It forced the film in all these different directions, and while it created a good film, it just wasn't the film I wanted. And that was three years ago. So I went back and I looked at all my footage again. I'd say most of everything I loved wasn't in there because it didn't fit that story. I then met Charlotte munch Benkston, and she became my editor. Charlotte said, put on the wall the scenes you love, that you want to keep. And so I did. And there were 1,600 scenes. Damn. Each of the wall. How big is his apartment? (laughs) Uh, That's how that wall space is insane. Each of the walls were completely full. And I said, these are all of them. And I love them all. From there, I narrowed it down. Uh, I thought these words of wisdom were important as audience and artist to artist feedback can be both worthwhile and distracting and misplaced for a filmmaker to hear. You know, while you should certainly listen and consider the feedback you receive, you need not use it all. You know, if you can identify and feel confident in the specific story you're attempting to tell, then examine the constructive feedback you're receiving and use it to help improve your final goal and not necessarily theirs. So, you know, definitely staying true to what you want to accomplish but in listening along the way. Yeah, I'm actually doing that right now with my first cut, and uh, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the notes of some of the people that I've sent it to. They're all involved with the project, so they kind of have an idea for what it is. And I thought that was kind of an interesting method. So we have this first cut, and then we're first sending it to people who were involved with the project who, like, know the vibe that we're going for and whatever and then we're going to make another cut based off their notes because they're more specific to what we know we want and then after that we're going to send out another cut to people who haven't seen the film and uh, see what they're confused by because it's going to be confusing and then based off of those notes we'll make our picture lock uh, and yeah, so I think that's kind of a cool way to think about it. Um, Smart also, strategy. Yeah. Also, I think it should be noted that like <clears throat> you don't have to have sixteen hundred scenes uh, to put up on your walls. This was a doc and not a narrative, correct? Too. So you know, if you're writing a narrative, don't expect to have that much shit to work with. 
So for my words of wisdom, earlier this week, we published an interview I conducted back at Sundance with director Jim Hosking and his co-writer David Wick, who are most well known for their crazy midnight film, The Greasy Strangler. They had come back to Sundance with Hosking's sophomore feature, An Evening with Beverly Love Lynn, which stars Aubrey Plaza, Emile Hirsch, Craig Robinson, Matt Berry, and Jermaine Clement, who also joined us in on the interview. Jermaine. Just Jermaine. I had initially intended for it to be a podcast, but due to some technical difficulties with the recorder, I ended up just writing it up. I may revisit it down the road and try and release it as a podcast because it was a really fun conversation, as you can probably imagine. Hosking has a very singular style, something that I would lump into the broad and hard-to-define term of deconstruction. Essentially, we all debated for maybe like five minutes about what this means, and that it means breaking down elements of the film to very small moments, like elements meaning dialogue, gesture, uh, even like set design, whatever, breaking them down to very small moments, reorganizing them in a way that highlights all of them separately, and then reconstructing them into a greater whole. So again, it's like a hard thing to sort of wrap your head around, but we got to an understanding. Hosking goes about doing this by paying really close attention to every part of his actor's performance. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. I think there's like there's yeah there's some people who vary things probably massively so that each take is like you know could be radically different and whether that's the performance or the dialogue or whatever. I mean I think generally like I don't know that I do that that much. It's more like I'll cling on to the things that I really like and then try and throw a couple of other little elements in there that I think would be interesting but it's um, it, you know it might be it could be as simple as like oh well, let's do that one again but this time with your hands mm-hmm. yeah I might focus on like hands rather than performance and you know it's like could you make them look more like they're like men bowing at a the court of King Arthur or something. Mm. I don't know. It could be that kind of thing. So it seems like your directing style is like very, I mean, very visual um, in more than one way of what we see on the screen. But it's also like when you're directing your actors or maybe even whoever else is on your crew, you're giving them these images to work with. As well, a, I think often I don't really understand like um, plots and stuff. And you know, when you watch <laughs> films and like, I just can't follow anything. And I've, I'm more focused on how people look and like little details and things and then I'll just get really lost and like I'd always watch a film with my wife and have to say every five minutes like oh god sorry could you just pause it a second so why are they talking about that you know and I just have no idea what's going on and I feel like even when I'm directing often I'm probably ignoring the bigger picture of what might be a really important emotional arc for someone to follow mm-hmm. and I'll be fixating on their hands and <laughs> saying like yeah could you waggle your fingers like that it's just you know well that's the deconstruction isn't it Cause, yeah exactly because while, while you've probably told me to shake my fingers I'm trying to think of the emotion of the of the character and, and they're two different they're coming from two different places right but if the emotion wasn't right then I would focus on that as well yeah I always wonder what directors ask for on a take-by-take basis uh, in terms of variation. So this was really enlightening and helpful for me to hear, and I think it could give you some ideas to experiment with as you're taking multiple shots of your own scenes. Awesome. So rounding out the show, I want to mention that we are in the middle of one of the country's coolest independent film festivals, SF Indie Fest, which is in its 20th year. It runs until February 15th, so if you're anywhere near San Francisco, check out the great lineup from some of the best in the biz. I also want to give a special shout out to a couple of our listeners on Twitter 
Sean Michael Cologne, a.k.a. at Open Ended Films, and David Maria, a.k.a. at David Maria Picks, who've been sending some super supportive tweets lately, even when I was pretty under the weather on last week's show. We really appreciate the love and definitely encourage you to check out these guys and their work. If I start sending you tweets about your gas problems, will that help you feel more comfortable on the podcast? Like like more you, comfortable letting them rip? No, like you did some really good work today. You know, just feel free, you know, make sure that everything's nice and loose. <laughs> Are you trying to encourage or discourage gas? Whatever makes you feel more comfortable, you know? That's if, sweet, John. Yeah. If you're feeling more comfortable knowing that you can let one rip, maybe you won't let one rip as much. Thanks, John. That's very supportive. <laughs> you're welcome. Good burp. And moving on, next Monday's podcast will be uh, burpless because it's me doing it. It's uh, a hey, pretty you special. you have plenty of stomach acid. I do have plenty of stomach acid. I have my own uh, digestion problems that, you know, we can get into in much greater length on Monday. in a further podcast. <laughs> but mon- this Monday's podcast will be a pretty special one because it's a conversation I had with a 71-year-old director by the name of Ben Lewin. He has had a crazy long career in film, which spans over four decades, and he shot his first film back in 1976. So you can imagine the wealth of knowledge he has from his experience. And a lot of what we ended up getting down to is what a filmmaker should and can do throughout his or her life and career to stay sane, (laughs) because it's pretty crazy. I love when we have older, more experienced uh, directors and craftspeople on the show. There's so much we can obviously all learn from them. He's an old guy. He's 71, you know, he's, he's, he's a senior citizen. He probably has a fair amount of gas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You all should see how uncomfortable this is making Eric. It's hilarious. Oh, wow. Send anyway. those tweets. <laughs> all right, Atlas. Speaking of tweets, please uh, stay in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at LizFilm. Do you call your farts tweets? So you're like, oh, I just tweeted. <laughs> this podcast was directed by Jim Hosking. We appreciate it. <laughs> and then I retweet it. <laughs> oh, my God. And then I report it. <laughs> Every notification I get, I just uh, report them all. It's not called No Fart School. Uh, so I'm Jim underscore John underscore Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, I, at this point, I hesitate to give you my Twitter handle. <laughs> Uh, I'm at Eric Lewis, but please don't, don't, <laughs> don't send me anything. Liz has been tweeting at Eric all episode long, and he's just tired of it. So. Can't do oh it. No more. I can't handle it. Find me on Insta. <laughs> so Charles is <laughs> Charles is at Charles Hain. We're all at No Film School. And at nofilmschool.com, you'll find links to everything we talked about on this episode and brand new articles daily about the craft of filmmaking. So stay in touch, rate us, and subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes, and we will all look forward to seeing you next Thursday. <laughs>